Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome here to Easter Sunday. So good to see you. My name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as lead pastor. This past week was spring break for the kiddos, and so one of the days my family and I tried to take advantage of it and go out to lunch together. So on Thursday of this past week, we headed downtown to one of our favorite lunch spots in the city, Possibilities, and we had a nice lunch together. And afterwards, we walked around the corner to Walton Street, and there is a little chocolate shop there called Sweet on Chocolate. And so it was me, my wife, and our three daughters. And living life with my wife and my three daughters, I realized that chocolate shops are not optional. It's about survival. And so uh, we went into the chocolate shop, and and on the wall, they had all this uh, Easter candy displayed, Easter-themed chocolate lollipops. And so I walked up out of curiosity to look at them, and I noticed that there were different shapes and sizes, and, and they had little bunnies, little chocolate bunnies. They had these little chocolate lambs, these white chocolate lambs, and then they had these chocolate ducks or ducklings. And I'm just staring at it and I'm thinking, this Easter is just confirming my suspicion that Easter is one of the more confused holidays out there. What, are we, what is this all about? Why are, we, why are there bunnies and ducks and lambs? And then I saw that there was a cross, a chocolate-shaped cross. And I thought, well, this is a little better. And then my daughter grabs it and holds it in front of her and starts singing the national anthem. And I was like... <laughs> Like, uh, I would never embarrass her and tell you which one she is, but her initials are Lilia Grace Hurtweck. <laughs> My hope is that you will leave today a little less confused about what this day means. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew for almost five months, and here we are at the end, Matthew chapter 28. This is the climax of the Gospel of Matthew, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're going to read his account. It's verses 1 through 10 in Matthew 28. And it says this, Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, which is Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. This is Matthew's account of the resurrection, his story. And there's two questions I want us to consider about this story. And the first question is this, can we take this story seriously? Can we take it seriously? Some people think this is a myth. It's a, it's a legend. It's a fairy tale. It's hyperbole. It's a metaphor. Or even worse, it's propaganda. Can we take this story seriously? And I think in this story, we see two reasons why we can. And the first reason is the empty tomb. Now, Matthew's resurrection account is bookended by two stories that give us a behind-the-scenes look at the men who were assigned to guard the tomb of Jesus. So before this resurrection account, after Jesus is executed upon a cross and he's about to be 
buried, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders of that day, they go to Pilate, who is the Roman governor of the region, and they say, hey, this man Jesus, who you just had crucified, when he was alive, he said that he was going to rise from the dead on the third day. And we don't want that to be told. So secure his tomb, send some soldiers so that the disciples don't come and steal Jesus' body and spread that rumor. So Pilate said, okay, you know, to appease these leaders, he said, take a guard of soldiers, and this is the phrase Matthew uses, make it as secure as possible, which means no expense and no effort was spared by the Roman soldiers to secure this tomb. They sealed the tomb and they set a guard. French priest and historian Emile Le Camus says this, never had a criminal given so much worry after his execution or had the honor of being guarded by a squad of soldiers. Now, after the account we read, Jesus rising from the dead, Matthew tells us what happened next. The guards go and tell the chief priests, hey, this is what happened. And the chief priests, they huddle up, they bribe the guards, they pay them off, they say, we can't have people knowing that this is true. When, if someone asks you what happened, tell them that the disciples came while you were, sleep, while you were sleeping and stole the body. And if Governor Pontius Pilate gets angry with you, don't worry, we got your back. Now, here's what's happening. Don't miss this. The two most powerful, influential, and resourced groups of leaders in existence at this time, the Romans, with all their political and military power, the Jewish Sadducees, Pharisees, chief priests, with all their religious and cultural power, both of these powerful groups of men had much to lose by this tomb being empty. The Romans, on one hand, didn't want a reputation of having soldiers and centurions that couldn't guard a dead body. Like, that's not good for their PR. So they don't want that story going around. And the Pharisees and the chief priests can't have people thinking Jesus is alive. This empty tomb was a problem for both of them. And all they had to do to shut the mouths of the disciples, all they had to do to shut this movement down from its start, all they had to do to change and control the narrative was go to the grave and produce a body. Pretty simple job. But they never did, they could not, and no one ever has, because the tomb was empty. Now, there's, there's multiple counter theories about what might have happened. I just want to talk about two of them real quick. Some people say, well, the women went to the wrong tomb. They were emotional, they were upset, it was dark, and they landed at the wrong tomb, and it wasn't actually Jesus' tomb. However, in Matthew 27, 61, it reads that the woman watched Joseph of Arimathea place Jesus in the tomb. They actually went there on Friday. So listen, 48 hours later, they're back at the same place. Additionally, if this had happened, it's an easy fix. Just march them to the right tomb, right? The woman did not go to the wrong tomb. The other counter theory is this. What if the disciples actually did this? What if they stole the body? Now, there's two problems with that. Number one, it doesn't give enough credit to the Roman soldiers. Let me talk about the Roman soldiers for a second. Historians and scholars believe that around 30 Roman soldiers would have been sent by Pilate to seal the tomb of Jesus after his body was placed inside. And part of the reason was they had a roll of stone that weighed two tons, 4,000 pounds, and then they had to place the official seal, the official wax seal of Rome upon that tomb. And defacing one of those seals was one of the worst crimes that you could do in the empire. 
According to the Greek and Roman antiquities, one Roman guard consisted of four centurions that would rotate throughout the night so that there were at least two or three always awake while the other one rested. These soldiers were not men who would be fooled by timid, scared Galileans, the disciples, or jeopardize their necks by sleeping on post. There's a guy named Dr. George Curry who wrote an entire book summarizing every example from ancient sources where Roman soldiers were disciplined. And he said that the punishment for this would have been death. To fall asleep at the post when you were given an assignment by Pilate that involved the Roman seal, you're going to die. Roman soldiers were the best of the best. They were expertly trained. If we think the disciples somehow moved the stone while the, while the soldiers were sleeping and stole the, the body of Jesus, we're not giving the Roman soldiers enough credit for who they were. But the other problem with that theory is we're giving way too much credit to the disciples. And this brings us to our second reason why I think we can take this story seriously, the lives of the disciples. Where were the disciples during the last few days of Jesus' life? You know, when Jesus is arrested in the garden, they're with him. But where are they from that point forward? They scatter. They scram. They split. They bow. They talk the big game. Peter, Jesus, I'm going to die for you. James and John, we can drink the cup. They talked a big game, but when the moment came, they, it actually reminds me of years ago. I was down in the city with my cousin who lived in New York City, and we were out on the playgrounds playing basketball. I was in way over my head. I was not nearly good enough to compete on these playgrounds in New York City. So because I wasn't good enough, I thought, well, I know what I'll do. I'll just chirp. I'll chirp. I'll run my mouth. I'll talk smack. And my cousin was getting embarrassed by me, and he looked at me at one point. He goes, David, an empty can makes a lot of noise. <laughs> I always remember that. These disciples were empty cans. They made a lot of noise, but there wasn't much substance to them. What about after the crucifixion of Jesus? Did all of a sudden they show up brave and angry and ready to take things back? No. They were nowhere to be found. They were hiding. They'd given up. They'd lost hope. They didn't go to the tomb. It was the women who went to the tomb. And even the women, as courageous as they were going to the tomb, they didn't go there expecting to find a living Jesus. And the reason we know that is because what they brought with them. They brought spices and ointments. Why? To give Jesus' body a proper burial. None of these followers of Jesus were expecting what happened that Sunday. If they were making this story up, they would not have made them. First off, the men were making this story up. They would not have made themselves look so faithless as they look, so weak and, and, and so unsure. But also, they would have never made the women the first, the first witnesses of the empty tomb because at this time in history, a woman's testimony was not permissible in Roman court or in Jewish court. So if you're trying to make up a story and tell a lie to advance a movement, you don't include the detail that the women were the first to witness it. You would only include that if that's what actually happened. So during the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus, they scatter. After on Sunday morning, they're nowhere to be found. But then we ask this question, what about these disciples after Sunday morning? And what we know from history and scripture is we see a radical, complete transformation of their lives and of the world. If you know history, here's what happens from this point forward. The Christian faith explodes over the next 300 years to the point where it becomes the official, it's recognized as the official religion of the Roman Empire. It goes from belonging to a few uneducated fishermen 300 years later. It's so big that Rome just decides to get behind it. And it all starts here. How do we make sense of that? How do we explain for that? 
And even more than that, these men who saw the resurrected Jesus Christ, most of them, the vast majority of them, were martyred and killed for their belief in Jesus. And with their dying breath, they were saying, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is alive. There's a notable scholar and skeptic. He's not a Christian. His name's E.P. Sanders. But he said, it's hard to discount this story. And here's his explanation. He says, I do not believe that deliberate fraud telling a lie, I do not regard deliberate fraud as a worthwhile explanation for the resurrection story because many of these people spent the rest of their lives proclaiming that they had seen the risen Lord and even more, most of them died telling this story. A Muslim author named Riza Aslan adds this. He, of course, is also not a believer, but he says this when he looks at the resurrection. One could simply dismiss the resurrection as a lie and declare belief in the risen Jesus to be the product of a deluded mind. However, there is a nagging fact you have to consider. One after another of those who claim to have witnessed the risen Jesus went to their own gruesome deaths and refused to change their story, refused to recant their testimony. That in of itself is maybe not unusual, but here's what's unusual. These followers of Jesus were not being asked to reject matters of faith that were based on events centuries or even a millennial before them that had been passed down to them. They were being asked to deny something that they themselves would have personally, directly encountered. Here's what they're saying. People do not knowingly die for a lie. And yet every one of these men gave their life saying, Jesus is a resurrected Lord. When we're trying to make sense of historical events and trying to just determine whether or not something in history actually happened or what happened, one of the most helpful questions to ask is what happened next? And what's the best explanation for what happened next? And what happened next was that these men who couldn't get their act together and were afraid and hiding, all of a sudden they turned the world upside down and birthed a movement that to this day, on this day, there's over two and a half billion people in the world today celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why? What's the reason? What's the sensible explanation? Is it because all of their dreams and hopes were crushed by the Roman establishment? That makes no sense. Is it because their leader was publicly executed and shamed? Would that be the motivation for them to all of a sudden be brave and, and begin to tell everybody about Jesus? Was it because a group of men who couldn't get along and couldn't stay strong, even when their beloved leader was present, all of a sudden could without him there? Does any of that actually make sense? So when you consider what happened next, we have to take this story seriously. The most sensible explanation based on the course of history is that Jesus Christ did what Matthew says he did here, that he rose from the dead on the third day and it changed the lives of his disciples and it's changing the world still today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of two things and we have to decide. Every person has to decide. It's either the greatest hoax ever or it's the greatest hope ever. It's either the greatest lie ever told or it's the greatest truth that our hearts need. If you're here this morning and you're like, yeah, but I got issues with Christians, I got issue with the church, and I got issues with Christianity. I get it, I get it. Christians don't get it right, we mess up a lot. Christianity has a checkered past. The church has plenty of reasons to be embarrassed of itself. However, this decision, whether or not to consider Christ and be a Christian is not based on any of those things. Christianity does not rise and fall on whether or not Christians always get it right. I'm glad for that. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do our best to honor Jesus with our lives. Of course we should. 
But Christianity doesn't rise and fall on that. Christianity doesn't rise and fall on whether or not you agree with or like the moral stance of Christianity. Christianity doesn't rise and fall on, on, on any of those things. Christianity rises and falls on one simple question. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead on the third day? If he didn't, move on. Forget it. Forget everything and anything Jesus said. But if he did, then we have to consider the second question this morning, which is not just can we take this story seriously, but can we take this story personally? Now, two times in Matthew's account, we see the command, do not be afraid. The angels say it to the woman. Jesus says it to the disciples, do not be afraid. And I think this is the central message of the resurrection. Because of what Jesus did, we do not have to be afraid. Jesus can look at us and say, do not be afraid. Now, I have learned, because I'm a dad of three girls, and they get worried and they get anxious. My daughters play lacrosse, and they go to school, and they have all these things that they're worried about, their next game and their next test. And when they're anxious and when they're worried, I've learned that one of the least helpful things I can say to them is, don't worry. <laughs> don't be anxious. Stop it. Knock it off. It doesn't help people. And when someone's really afraid, it's actually not always super helpful just to say, do not be afraid. But there's something unique about Jesus saying it. You, know, you might also be thinking, how in this world, have you noticed, how in this world today can you say, don't be afraid? There's so many things to worry about. There's so many things to be afraid about. Have you looked around? Have you looked inside? How can someone say, do not be afraid? How have you done with your fears this past year? How have you done with your fears these past three to four years? How have you done with your fears? But the resurrection story says that there is something that makes Jesus uniquely qualified to look at you and me this morning and say, do not be afraid. And it's in verse 9 where I think we see the reason why. It says that Jesus met them and said, greetings. <clears throat> now, my personal opinion is Jesus kind of undersold this moment. <laughs> I would have been like, ta-da! <laughs> Boo! Like something. Like I would have done something more than just, hey. But this word greetings is like as normal of a greeting as you're going to get in the Greek. It's just Jesus being like, what's up? And then it says they came up. Can you imagine this moment? Jesus is alive, standing in front of them. They come up to him, and it says they took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. As I get older, I'm learning about myself that I'm more easily emotional. I have a, I have a little harder time controlling my emotions as I get. I don't know if it's because I'm a dad now. I don't know if it's because I've suffered loss. I don't know if it's just how life tenderizes you over time. <clears throat> When I was younger, I could watch sad movies and just sit there stoic the whole time. Other people would be crying. I'd just be like, okay with it. Now, I can't barely get through commercials. Like, I'll be halfway through a commercial, and I'll be like, <clears throat> you know, just like losing it. And uh, one of the things I cannot watch in public <laughs> for my own respectability is any video of a member of our military coming home and surprising their family. I can't watch it. I, I'm a mess. And, but when you watch those scenes, you know it always jumps out at me, that after they overcome the shock, after the child realizes mom's home, dad's home, or the spouse realizes, or the parent realizes their child is home, after the initial shock, they just want to grab them. You notice that? They can't stand back and just watch. They can't just look them up and down. They can't just have a normal conversation. They wrap their arms around them and they squeeze them like they don't want to let them go. And then finally, when they do step back, you'll see them touching their face. And what they're doing is they're essentially asking the question, are you real? Are you really here? Is this for real? 
And that morning when the disciples grabbed hold of Jesus' feet, I feel like the question in their heart at first was, are you real? Is this real? Did this really happen? And when I see that scene, all of a sudden I see myself there. And you know why? Because when I'm afraid, I want to grab onto something real. When life's not going my way on the darkest moment of my life and in moments when I'm struggling and filled with sorrow, I'm looking for anything real to grab onto. Do you, do you, have you felt that, that in our darkest moments, everyone is trying to hold on to something real? And so we go through life trying to grab onto things, thinking maybe it'll be real enough to give me strength and hope. Here's some of the things that I think people grab onto. Sometimes we grab onto our positions, our status. We grab hold of our titles that we've earned, our resumes. We grab onto our careers and hold onto them for dear life. We grab onto fame, to wealth. We grab onto the taste of power, the illusion of control, the promise of pleasure, the need for approval, the drive for acceptance. Some of us grab onto our past successes and we relive our glory days inside our minds and in conversations over and over, holding on to them, hoping that they're still somehow real. Or we hold on desperately to future possibilities that things will be different, that things will be better. Some of us grab onto things about ourselves, what makes us respectable, what makes us interesting, what makes us likable, what makes us memorable, what makes us better than other people, what makes us important. But the truth is, is no one gets through life in the darkest moments of life without trying to grab hold of something real. Life has a way of teaching us that none of those things are actually guaranteed to us. As good as they are, they're not guaranteed to us, and they cannot guarantee us what we need most. They're not enough. They're never enough. And in a way, they're not real. Everything this world offers us is a mirage, a facade, an illusion. It so easily slips from our grasp, can be so easily taken from us, leaving us in worse despair and worse fear than we had before. But on this Sunday, when they grabbed hold of Jesus, his feet, his physical body, they realized he's real. And he'll never be taken from us. Consider this, too. When the disciples grabbed Jesus' feet, those feet still bore and wore the scars of the cross. We know from the Gospel of John that when Jesus appeared to his disciples on another time, he showed them the wounds in his hands, in his feet, and in his side. And so when they grabbed onto his feet, his feet still were carrying the scars from his crucifixion, his substitutionary sacrificial work on our behalf. And I want to challenge you with this thought this morning. There are many other good things in life that will help you through seasons. There's nothing wrong with family and career and acceptance and approval. Those things are not bad, but they're not ultimate. We can't grab onto those things and put all of our trust and hope in them. And nothing else in this world that you grab hold of did for you what Jesus did for you. Nothing else in this world that you're going to grab hold of bears the scars for the price that was paid for your sin and for my sin. And so we hold on to the one who held on to us, even as he went to the cross. Now, when Jesus went into that grave, his followers thought all hope was lost. But when he walked out of the grave on Sunday, they knew that hope was real. I'm going to invite Antonia and Jared to come on up. The spoken word artist named Propaganda says it this way. He says, Jesus' death functions as payment. He wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection, we all cheered because that means the check cleared. When Jesus walked out of his tomb on Sunday, he said, grab hold of me. I'm real. Do not be afraid. I'm real. But that's not the only part of that verse, as I finished, that jumped out at me. Not just did they grab hold of his feet. The next part says they worshiped him. 
So here's what Jesus is saying as he walks out of the tomb on Sunday. Not just I'm real, but I'm God. I'm God. They worshiped him, and Jesus didn't say stop. Jesus didn't say, no, you shouldn't worship me. I'm just like you. Jesus received their worship because Jesus knew that he was God. He was the resurrected one who just proved who he was. And as the one who conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave, Jesus as God now reigns over all. And he has authority over the sin that, so, that we struggle with. And he has authority over the death that we're so afraid of. And because he has authority over those things, he can say to us this morning, do not be afraid. Even when you're struggling in your sin and you're struggling in your life, do not be afraid. Even when you feel like you're facing death or someone that you love is facing death, do not be afraid. Because of what Jesus did, sin is no longer fatal to, to us. The denial of sin is fatal, but sin itself is not fatal because sin has lost its power because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. But also, listen to this, because of what Jesus did, death is no longer an executioner. Death is a gardener because you don't bury Christians, you plant them. And when Jesus walked out of his tomb on that day, the Bible called Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. Some of you are gonna go have lunch after this. Hopefully all of you are gonna go have lunch. You're gonna walk into your house, or you're gonna walk into someone's house, you're gonna ham, lamb, roast, whatever you're eating, I don't know. Remember Easter is a confused holiday, everybody eats different stuff. When you smell that, that's like the first fruits of your meal. But it doesn't stop there, does it? What a shame if you walked into the house, smelled it all, and just like, oh, that was good. And you walk out. It's just the first fruits. When Jesus walked out of the grave on Sunday morning, the story's not over. His story's not over. Your story's not over. He's the first fruits of the resurrection, which means there's more to come. And you know who's coming after him? You and me and all who place our faith and trust in him. When he left his grave behind, that meant that you and I someday will leave our grave behind. And then someday, this is how the Bible ends, someday even death will die. Sickness, same, shame, sorrow, cancer, disease, it will be no more because of what happened this Sunday morning. So what does Easter mean? Easter means do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because this story is real. Jesus is real. Jesus is God. And that's what Easter is all about. Let's pray together.